Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Rebecca Glass, who is a historical martial arts instructor and an avid baseball fan, and we'll get into that in a minute. She has also appeared on the TV quiz show Jeopardy, so this interview should feel pretty low pressure. So without further ado, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hello. Um, How did you get into historical martial arts? So do you want the long version or the short version? I'm in the rush. (laughs) So the long version actually starts all the way back in 2002 when Mm -hmm. the Two Towers came out as a movie. I had seen Fellowship of the Ring, um, and I hadn't read any of the Lord of the Rings books, but I saw Fellowship of the Ring when it came out. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but among Jewish people, there is a tradition that on Christmas, you go have Chinese food and you go catch a movie. So that year, that was our my um, My brother-in-law is a Jewish person from Chicago. So, yes, we're familiar with, with that. <laughs> uh, so when I saw Fellowship, I was like, okay, this is, you know, a good movie. And I'm glad I saw it, but it kind of ended there. But then when I saw The Two Towers, something clicked. And I went, oh, my God, this is amazing. There was something about the Battle of Helm's Deep that I was like, this is the best thing I have ever seen on a movie screen. Okay. So when I got home after we saw the movie... I went to my computer, and this is 2002, so there was no Facebook, there's no Twitter, there's no Instagram, but what you had were web forums. So mm-hmm. I put Lord of the Rings in the search bar, and what came up was a Lord of the Rings uh, fan forum site that I won and I joined because I was like, I can't get enough. And through that site, uh, I met other people who were also interested in the same topics, and Eventually, I got to meet some of these people in person, and while meeting with them in person, uh, one mentioned, hey, you know, I play with real swords, and we have actual manuals, and, you know, we we learned the actual techniques, and I thought, oh my god, this is the best thing ever, I want to do this. But this was 2007, and I was in London at the time, and my thought was, well, there's no way this exists in the U.S. because there's no way to have the manual. <laughs> so he's like, I want, I want to do this, but I don't think it exists in the U.S. So I, when I got back, I never really looked very seriously. Okay. Um, and then a few years later, in 2014, my sister-in-law was looking for something to get me as a birthday gift. And my brother said, hey, she found this uh, group on to go take sword classes. And one we want to make sure you're interested in it before, you know, we go yeah. ahead and get it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm interested. <laughs> like, have you not known me these last few years? Um, so I had the uh, voucher to take lessons. I signed up and I never looked back. And they, they officially won me over on that first day when someone mentioned that there were competitions and tournaments. Okay. Okay. That's right. This is I, what I want. Yeah, I laugh with that because back in the nineties, we had we used to have to go to the US to find other people to play with, right? So the yeah. idea of somebody from the US not knowing that it was—I mean, there, there's always been more of it in America than in 
the UK. So I was thinking, uh, I was thinking about it from like a historic, sure. uh, historical perspective, wherein you know the actual manuals would be in museums in the UK or Germany or, or wherever, and yeah. maybe not so much in the US. Yeah, I mean, it, ma- it makes sense. It's perfectly logical. But of course, you know, these, these rich Americans in the 19th century went and bought all the manuals and took them to the Americans. Half of them are actually like in the States. Um, oh my God. So uh, who did you start training with? Back in so I started training with the New York Historical Fencing Association. It, yeah. um, it was just, that was the local group. So yeah. there was no thought going into it. It was just, this is the local group. This is what's offering sword classes. So good choice. Yeah. That's where I'm training. Excellent. Um, and how are you going to keep that up when you move to rural Pennsylvania? Well, uh, fun fact, my husband, um, as I mentioned, used to live in the area, and he's kind of mm-hmm. responsible for starting the clubs that exist there. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so you already uh, have, like, clubs and stuff to go join? Yeah. There Excellent. are uh, there are a few different uh, clubs in the area, um, not to mention that we're actually not going to be that far from New York City, so we'll be back frequently to keep running our classes as well. Okay, so like it's a couple of hours, I take it. Yeah. Okay, now by European standards, that's a very long way. By, by American standards, that is next door. I understand you have a completely I'm different sure perception. The, I'm sure you've heard the saying that in England, a hundred years is a long time, and in America, or wait, no, it's the other around. In America, a hundred years is a long time, and in England, a hundred miles is a long distance. Yeah, exactly. Um, funny how that works. So. Okay, so you've been training in New York, and I should probably mention that I, I think was it, I don't know if it's the first time we met or not, but um, at Sword Squatch some years ago, yeah. um, you did this thing where you recited the Lichtenauer Zettel, and I couldn't actually come and attend that because I was teaching across from it, and you very kindly gave me my own private demonstration <laughs> of Lichtenauer Zettel, and it was. It was like well, this super medieval experience of having somebody just recite the thing in German. It was awesome, even though I don't speak a word of German. Um, so for the sake of listeners who may not have the specialist knowledge, um, so what are the Zettel? And um, if you happen to have any phrases still in your head that you'd like to repeat, that'd be awesome. So the I'm going to try and answer this and do the, the best I can. Um, but the Zettel is basically a mnemonic poem that was meant to help people remember the various uh, sword techniques uh, in the uh, Lichtenauer system. So the Zettel itself isn't the instruction manual. Like, you know, in Fiori's texts, you have the passage and the picture and all that. What the Zettel does is it gives you these rhyming couplets that are meant to trigger your memory of what the uh, the glosses will then elaborate and explain. Okay, this is what they're actually talking about how to do. Right. Um, there's an argument um, that I actually quite like that the genius, that, I don't know if that's the right word, but the genius of the Zettel isn't that it's telling you that this technique exists or this technique exists, but that it organizes it in a coherent way um, for what you do in a sword fight. If he does A, then you do B. If you do B and he does C, then you do D. And so on on down. Um, I'm probably not doing this justice, um, but there is a book called Sword Science and Society that kind of lays this out with the idea that 
none of the techniques that Lichtenauer taught would have necessarily been secret techniques, but the way that the Lichtenauer system and the people training in the Lichtenauer system, um, the, the way that they use them tactically, that's where the Zettel comes in. Okay. Um, Can you think of an example? Um, so one of the lines I have memorized at the beginning of the Zornhau section is Werder Oberhaut Zornhau Art dem Traut, which is basically if if this guy Oberhaus you, then you do the Zornhau. Okay. So it's a very clear, like, hey, the technique of the Zornhau exists, but you do it against an Oberhau. Yeah, the, the okay. glosses go into more, more detail sure, about sure. everything. So it's a bit like a... It's a rhyming sequence of like chapter headings to remind you of what all the different things are and you're, and that sort of triggers your memory of the rest of the chapter. Yeah. Okay. So I use uh, physical forms the same way. So like if I have a long sort of syllabus form where it, go, it takes you through these various techniques, but each one is supposed to be a reference to something bigger. So we've got references to the dagger section, references to spear plays, references to polax and stuff, all built into this one long sword form. So it's actually a medieval thing, right? You've got like the the notion of like a string of pearls and each pearl gets bigger as you can add more stuff to it. Yep. Cool. Um, so you um, the, the book that I was referencing also posits the argument that it's possible that all the members of the Society of Lichtenauer may have crossed paths at a at university. Mm-hmm. And had they been educated in the ways that people were educated back then, then they would have learned Aristotelian um, logic and argumentation. And then that is no- noticeable in the way that the Zettel is put together. Andrew. So the book is Sword, Science and Society. Yeah. Okay, I've not... This is shameful of me, but I've not actually come across it. Who wrote it? Do you know? Um, I think the pen name is uh, James uh, Acutt. Um, I know uh, Keith Farrell um, helped distribute it. Uh, okay. So. All right, I can... I'll, I'll have a look and maybe put a link in the show notes so people can find it. Okay, cool. Um, all right, so... You mentioned that you were like really excited about the whole tournament thing, <laughs> yeah. um, which is fine. Um, I'm a dirty sport fencer. <laughs> that that is not a fair thing to say. Like, I I started my sword career began with sport fencing, like Olympic sport fencing. I right. never got the I never got the chance to do right. so, Olympic so I, fencing. So I went to my my first fencing tournament when I was probably 13. Right. So, you know, I understand the whole tournament thing. I understand the attractions and the strengths and the weaknesses of them. And you don't you don't have to you don't have to apologize for liking them. It's quite all right. They have their place. Um, but so tell us more about it. So what, what draws you to tournaments and how do you prepare for them? So I've just always been um, competitive okay. and I've always enjoyed sports. Um, I've never been a really good athlete. <laughs> I want to make that, that clear. So um, I do a lot of tournaments and uh, my wins are few and far in between, but I just, I like the adrenaline rush I get when I compete. Um, and 
with HEMA specifically, as opposed to doing another team sport like um, soccer or football or basketball, when you're sword fighting, it's you there in the ring fencing. Every good thing you do, that that's on you. That's something yeah. that you did, you had the power to do. And when you have a really good fight, it's just this, this such an empowering experience. It makes you feel like a, or makes me feel like a total badass. Like, hey, I'm doing this athletic thing that I always wanted to do. And not only am I doing an athletic thing, I'm literally playing with swords. Right. Like, how is that not? Um, so I'm, as you know, I've always been a pretty big sports fan and finding out that there were tournaments is was kind of like okay here's a way to marry my love of history and medieval history with my love of sports and I can combine the you know the two that way and I understand that not everyone gets the same things out of tournaments and not everyone enjoys competing and I just want to say that that's completely valid and I don't want to be like you know tournaments are the be all and the end all of historical martial arts because they're not they're an aspect um, of fencing in the community it's an aspect that I happen to really enjoy but not everyone does and that's totally okay it's the same like some like vanilla ice cream and some like mint chocolate chip which I don't at all no mint and chocolate just don't belong together in my opinion, I, I just I, I don't like mint. I have a really hard time with mint. Okay, yeah. <laughs> brushing your teeth must be an unpleasant experience. Uh, yeah, I get my toothpaste from the dentist. Okay, so it doesn't have the mint in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's actually a really big thing. Really? Wow! I, I didn't yeah. even know they made toothpaste without mint in. That's really. They do. You, you you have to look for it, but it does exist. Well, you know, we were talking before the recording started uh, about sort of segues and and tangents and what have you and it never occurred to me to ask you about your feelings about mint but i'm very glad that (laughs) they came up (laughs) okay so so you know if you're if you're bringing like sweets or something to give to rebecca make sure they're not mint understood all right so plain chocolate or milk um so i can't eat dairy without getting sick so that limits what kind of chocolate i can have so that would be dark chocolate then? Um, yeah, or uh, unsweetened chocolate for like um, like the pure cocoa you'd use to bake with. Okay. Really fine. Um, or any type of vegan chocolate is usually okay too. Okay. Well, because it's very important because if people are going to be bringing you chocolate the next time they see you at a tournament because they've listened it's, to this show, it's, it's important that it's the right kind. I mean, if you want to bring me candy before a tournament, don't bring me chocolate. Bring me, bring me gummy bears. Okay, you're a gummy bear person. Oh my god, I I have a I have a horrific weakness for things like. I mean, I avoid them completely because if I take one, I have to eat the whole bag straight away, and it's just not good for me. Okay, what is your favorite color gummy bear? I don't have a favorite color gummy bear. Do you not? Uh, mine the no. green. I think the green are the best. It's the, there's not enough difference in the flavor for me to have a favorite. Uh, okay. It could be I'm thinking of the English version of the sweet, which has quite distinct flavors. The uh, the European gummy bears are better than the ones we can get in America. 
Wow! You heard it here, an actual American saying that Europeans do sweets better. I'm very glad you said that because we have a very um, strong opinions about American sweets over here. My kids, like every time I go to the States, they have this great long shopping list that they give me and I have to bring back, like, you know, I, I go into these incredible supermarkets you have with these mile-long uh, sort of avenues of candy and I get the stuff and I bring it back and they're always super excited and I give them the sweets and then they're always a little bit, ah. <laughs> the The American flavors of Skittles are better than the British flavors of Skittles. And that's a hill you're willing to die on. I can see it in your face. <laughs> okay, well, I will not argue with you about that. Because I, I shouldn't eat Skittles either because they have the same effect on me as gummy bears. I take one, I just have to eat the whole bag and it's, it's, not, it's not good for me. <laughs> okay, so that's another little aside. So uh, you're a gummy bear person, good to know. All right. Now, a lot of people in the sword community, and I, I am definitely one of these, um, one of the reasons we like swords is that it doesn't involve running around after spherical objects. Right. I, I, I went through the British boarding school system where everyone is completely insane about ball sports and particularly like team sports like rugby and football and what have you. And it was like, it was like they're all from another planet. They're all so excited about this running around in a field, getting muddy and, and chasing this odd shaped object. And the relationship between that object and these white sticks and a white line is somehow important. And I'm expected to care. I, I just, it just never, never worked for me. So it's very handy that you are a massive baseball fan because maybe you can explain to me why people care about sports. I can tell you why I care about baseball. I can't tell That's you why uh, <laughs> other people do. Uh, for me, there are a few different things that go in. So I like I like most sports, um, mm-hmm. but baseball has always been kind of the biggest one for me. And there are a few reasons for this. Okay. Uh, the first is the first is actually quite simple. Baseball doesn't use a clock. So football, basketball, hockey, they all use a clock uh, or a timer. It's, you know, the most points in such and such minutes. Yep. And if you get to a point where, say, in hockey, you're down by four goals and there's 10 seconds left, it's physically, it's a physical impossibility for you to come back and win the game. Yeah. But baseball doesn't use the clock, so there's always a chance that your team can come back and win. Sometimes this chance is really, really small and you really have to mess up, but we've seen it happen. It's okay. kind of the, the amount of possibilities of anything that could happen when something's that open-ended leads to some really crazy drama. Um, a lot of people complain about baseball games being slow and taking too long. A lot of that honestly just has to do with the TV deals and the fact that they have to do commercials at, at like yeah. each break instead of just going through. Um, one of the reasons I like watching soccer is because there are no TV breaks and you just play straight through. Um, okay. So I was going to interject there that Cricket, one of the games I was forcibly exposed to and have no interest in whatsoever. Some of those international matches go on for days. Literally days. Yeah, I've heard. (laughs) It's like, no, no, half an hour is enough. It's more than enough. But you want to do this for like three days each or something? It's ridiculous. 
But anyway, uh, but people like it. Why would you stop? I mean, if, if there was a sword event that went on, I've been to sword events that went on for days and days and days, and it was great. So I guess if you're really liking it, the longer the better, right? Yeah. And then the other, the other things that I like about baseball, in terms of American sports, it is the most historic in that its professional leagues uh, started the earliest. They started in the mid-late 1800s, I think. Mm-hmm. I think the first professional game might have been in the 1870s, maybe the 1880s. Uh, so there's all this uh, history with the the sport, and it's echoed sort of in the the American consciousness that, like, if you say something like Jackie Robinson, everyone knows who you're talking about. Um, everyone American. I, I don't I don't know who Jackie Robinson was, but that's okay. I don't need to. I don't know who Jackie Robinson was, but I'm not American, so that's fine. Uh, Jackie Robinson was the first black uh, major league uh, baseball player. He, oh, right. Uh, ended the, the color barrier. Um, and then most uh, Americans will, will know who Babe Ruth is. They'll, if you say the World Series, they understand that you're talking about the baseball championship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the nickname for baseball is the national pastime. Right. Whether or not it currently is. I think currently the sport with the highest ratings is American football, which is the one I'm like least interested in. Um, but having that history as someone who is, uh, who majored in history and has an interest in history, having that history makes it uh, really attractive. And on that same note, baseball is also very stats friendly and people have been keeping baseball statistics as long as baseball's been as long as there have been statistics to keep and it's really interesting what people do with statistics and the way that they can analyze the sport and so it, it gets really really nerdy uh, uh, okay so so what what do they do with these statistics do they use i mean because you can't predict the outcome of a game Funny that I literally used to run a website called You Can't Predict Baseball. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, one of the uh, one of the radio announcers for my favorite team, the New York Yankees. All right. Uh, uh, would have a uh, phrase that he likes to say. Where he says, "You know, you, you just can't predict baseball," and it's because baseball often subverts expectations. So you can look at the statistics and you say, okay, so this team has this pitcher going and this pitcher hasn't given up a run in like 20 innings or whatever. And he's going to win the award for best pitcher of the year. And then you go play the game and your team knocks their pitcher out in the first inning because he's having a really bad day. Okay. Um, it's that, that sort of element of completely subverting the expectations. And then you had like, there's a team called the Chicago Cubs who went from 1908, they, they won a World Series, and then they didn't win another World Series until 2016. Wow. So uh, they, my great-aunt uh, great turned 126... Was it 2016? Yeah, my great-aunt turned 100 in 2016. She passed a couple years after, but she turned 100 in 2016, so we're talking someone who, who's lived a very long, full life. The Cubs never won the World Series in her lifetime. That's how long that right. drought was. I mean, well, I guess technically they did win the World Series the year she turned 100. But before that, they never <laughs> Maybe won. Maybe it's because she turned 100. 
They were just waiting for that happy day. I, 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 mean, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the, the last reason that I really like baseball um, is because the team that I like now, all the teams that I root for, or at least the vast majority of teams I root for, I root for just because they were the local team while growing mm-hmm. up. There's nothing more than that. But the baseball team I root for happens to be really good and has a chance of winning the championship every year or almost every year. Okay. So at least they're in with a a shot. Okay. Yeah. The thing is, the reason I wanted to ask you this question is partly because us sword people are often asked by non-sword people why we care about swords, Right. And fundamentally, it's not an answerable question. Some people, they, when they pick up a sword, they just light up inside, and other people just don't. And there's nothing you can really do about that, I don't think. Right? And pretty much everyone who ever listens to this show um, is one of those people who, when they pick up a sword, they just kind of go, ooh. Right? But it's, it's, it's interesting to see how you're, you're kind of... You're, obviously, you like baseball just because you like baseball. But, but there are ways that it ties into all the other things that you're interested in like like clearly you like stats and I, I'm guessing that one of the reasons you like the tournament scene in historical martial arts is because you can have like rankings of, of fences and points and things yes and no okay. um, yes I enjoy having stats um, I enjoy knowing that you know I have a rating and I can go and look at the stats uh, but on the other hand, it's a really fine line between just enjoying it and having fun with it and then taking it way too seriously. Okay. So in baseball or any other professional sport, the stats are important because it impacts who a team decides they want to have on their team, who they trade for, who they sign as a free agent. Um, so it, it has an actual physical consequence in terms of an athlete being able to have a job. But for us, we just we play for fun. So as soon as it becomes that serious or or that um, I'm starting to obsess over the rating. Mm-hmm. It's not a healthy habit to be in. So I have to pull myself back and say, okay, you know, just leave it. Don't think about it. Just enjoy it. Cause I'm doing this for fun. Yeah. The exercise is great. The making friends is even better, but I'm really just doing this for fun. It's not a professional career for me in any sort of the way. And I, and while I know that people have been able to make careers out of being instructors or... Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been my, my full-time job for 20 years. Yes. But I don't know anyone who's been able to make a full-time job out of actually being a competitive fetzer. No, well, the prices aren't there. Um, and even if someone was able to do that, that person's not going to be me. Because I, I go to tournaments, I have fun, but I don't win a whole lot of anything. Okay. I have more tournaments where I've finished d- dead last or near to the last than I've had tournaments where I come home with any sort of medal. Okay. So you're, you're, you really like the tournaments, but you're not actually driven by the medals. I'm driven. A, a little bit of me is driven by the idea of one day, you know, getting such and such medal. And I, I do have a couple, so I'm not like completely mm-hmm. <laughs> without. <laughs> um but I would probably I would do the tournaments anyway because it's fun and it's empowering and I get to see my friends. Um, you see, 
what what I would like to sort of draw attention to is the tournament is empowering even if you don't win it, right? And I think that is something that is largely misunderstood by people who don't really know about tournaments and don't like them because they assume that the winner is super empowered and everyone else who shows up is somehow like humiliated and disgraced when actually everyone who shows up, if they show up with the right attitude, has the capability of going home empowered. And the the right attitude is key. And I will admit, I have not always had the right attitude in the past that I've had torn. I've had tournaments that I expected uh, myself to do really well. And then I end up not doing really well and didn't handle it in the way that I wish I had. Um, but with the experience comes learning. And after taking some time to read up a bit on sports psychology and coaching, um, I've been sort of able to create a better environment for myself, um, which is basically at one point I was having a hard time separating my success in a tournament from my self-worth as a person. Ah. And that's a really bad place to be. Um, And it, it was actually one of my friends who was standing in as a coach for me at a tournament I went to that after I, I didn't actually perform that badly in the tournament, but I didn't perform as well as I want, wanted to, so I was kind of miserable. So my coach took me aside and asked, you know, wh- what's going on? What is going through my brain to, like, how do, how do we get at what's really the issue here? And just being able to sit down and talk about it and come to the realization that, okay, I'm attributing my self-worth to how much I succeed in a tournament. That's destroying me. It's destroying me, my self-esteem, and it's destroying my performance in the tournament because as soon as I put that pressure on myself, I I kind of freeze and I don't just fence. Yeah. So once I came to that realization, it, I was able to say, okay, now that I know that this is what's going on, I can deal with it and the majority of the tournaments I've done after that, even though I might not necessarily have won a whole bunch, I was able to enjoy them a lot more. I was able to have mm. a lot more fun. And I actually had some performances that I was really happy with, even if I didn't come home with a medal. Um, and so, like, there, there is a lot of psychology that goes into it and a lot of s- sports psychology even. Sure. Um, and um, it's definitely been... Oh, good. So you mentioned that you um, read up a bit on sports psychology and that sort of thing. Is there a particular book you'd recommend? So the book that really helps me is called The Brave Athlete. Um, I don't have the I don't have the author's name in mind. There's don't, more than one, and it's all the way at the other worry. end we, of we, my apartment. Yeah, we we will find it, and we will put a link in the show notes so that listeners can go to the show notes and find all the details. Um, it's actually it's a straight up sports psychology book um, that I picked up at Barnes & Noble. Um, I think you guys have Waterstones. It's like our Mm -hmm. equivalent of that. Um, And so, like, I don't have any ulterior motive in promoting the book. It was just I was looking for a book on sports psychology. That's the book I found at the bookstore, so I bought it. And it's written written actually primarily for endurance athletes, um, marathoners, triathletes, Mm -hmm. um, and so on. But anyone performing in any sort of individual sport, I think will really get a lot out of it because a lot of the concepts it talks about were were directly applicable to my experiences in HEMA. 
including the um, being able to talk about self-worth and self-esteem and how that affects your performance, as well as, um, if you excuse the language, they talk about having a fuck-it point mm-hmm. um, where... Oh, you can say whatever the fuck you like on my show. <laughs> um, but you, you reach this point in a tournament or a race or competition or what have you, where you basically just stop trying and you just do. And it could be that, oh, you know, the first leg of the race went really poorly. And so you just, you stop thinking about it, you stop trying and you just do it. And I have had these moments in fencing tournaments. And I know I've had those moments in fencing tournaments. And when you reach that point and you stop thinking and you just do, a lot of times that's when you actually perform your best. Yeah, it goes a lot better that way. Because you, you get out of your own way and it's no longer... Basically, your ego stops being involved with the process. And you can just yeah. do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So, the, the... The tournament scene has, like... It's it's huge. There's tournaments all over the place these days. There didn't used to be. Um, and it has these various strengths and weaknesses, what would you sort of, given your druthers, what would the tournament scene look like for you? Like how would, how would you adjust it to suit you to perfection? Um, I hope people don't kill me for this, but, um, they can't do you're armed with a sword. You'll be fine. (laughs) Uh, the only thing that I think I'd really like to change would be to have um, a more comprehensive or streamlined way of training judges. Okay. So anytime you have a sport, and I, I haven't done any tournaments in the UK. Um, I did Swordfish one year, but that's the, my only experience of the European scene. Um, but anytime that you have human judges, and this also happens in baseball where we have human umpires, you have human error. Of course. Now, a lot of the people that we say are like the best directors and the best judges are people that have a lot of experience. And experience is a really good teacher. And some people have experience, previous uh, Olympic fencing, refereeing experience. Uh, some people just have a lot of HEMA experience as well as uh, some public speaking skills and so on. But in a lot of uh, tournaments, you in, in order to for the tournament to have enough staff to happen, you have the people competing in the tournament also act as judges for other uh, pools, mm-hmm. um, which means that everyone who everyone who's who is a judge has to start somewhere. Yeah. There has to be some tournament where they were the new judge, and they may or may not have um, been been taught the skill. So judging is a skill set; it's a learnable skill set. I, I was and, taught you know, it explicitly and deliberately by my fencing coach, and we had all sorts of like when we were doing sport fencing, like judging to see the hits and also presiding the fight. It was a part of fencing that was explicitly taught to us as. This is a necessary skill if you're going to have any kind of fencing career. Yeah, so, and yeah, and I know uh, some uh, some people and some clubs have been doing really good jobs at 
uh, trying to train their club members to be able to judge. But if someone's not interested in co the competition scene, then there's little reason for them to learn how to judge. And then is that the best use of their class time? Yeah, sure. Probably not. Um, but if we, I know there are some tournaments out there that have their judges um, be people who aren't participating in the competition at all and can just focus on judging. Um, and some events that are trying to um, compensate um, judges in some way. I've, you know, the most common, um, if you're staffing at an event, you might get a registration discount. It's probably the most common thing I've seen. Um, and I don't have the perfect solution. I don't think there is a perfect solution unless someone comes up with an electronic scoring system that can account for the difference uh, in quality of hit. But that's it's it, not it going to happen. No one the has the time or the energy. Yeah, and the electronic scoring system destroyed sport fencing. Right, right. Destroyed is the wrong word. It changed it out of all recognition, and it made it nothing like actual sword play. Yeah. Well, I took so, some, I, um, a couple of years after I started HEMA, I took uh, some sports saber classes, and mm -hmm. we would bow at the end of class. And I'm so used to HEMA where for a hit to count, it has to have a certain quality. Yeah. And then the sport fencing would, you know, tag me and the light went off and I'd be yeah. like, but that, did, that doesn't count. That was no quality. And I'm like, yes, it counts. What? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, it is tag. It's not, you know, it doesn't matter if you, with saber, with the electric sabers, it doesn't matter if you hit with a flat or hit with the edge or hit with the point. It's like, it makes contact or it doesn't. And if the accelerometer in the, in the hilt says you're going forward, it counts. Yeah. It, um, drives, and then, me, like, it drove me nuts. So, when I'm uh, directing or refereeing, you know, I want to, see, I don't, I don't want to see people bashing each other to smithereens, but I do want to see some quality sure. in the, you know, and I'm so used to throwing things out for no quality or having things thrown out for mm. no quality that, you know, when all of a sudden it counts, I'm like, huh, really? Yeah. Well, you see, I have a thing when I'm directing fights, so, you know, running a pool or whatever, my idea is, Everyone should spend maximum time fencing and minimum time dicking around with equipment, right? And generally. Yeah. So I'm super strict about people showing up on the line, ready to fence, and they get like a count of 10. And if they get, I get to 10, it doesn't matter if they're like two feet away from the line. If they're not standing there early, when I get to 10, they're out, right? They, they forfeit the, that bout. And I tell all the fencers beforehand, you have to assume that I'm drunk blind and biased against you right so you have to make those hits so clean that it would it would just be outrageous for anybody even someone who's blind drunk and biased against you to not allow the hit right because then then you know they know every judge misses hits right and every, there's always this sort of you know, stuff happens really quickly and you're not sure all this that. But, you know, if you're completely in control of your opponent's weapon and your point just goes to exactly where it's supposed to go and it just sits there for a beat and there's nothing they can do about it and then you get out of there and they can't possibly touch you. There's, everyone can see it and everyone knows it, knows it worked. And so I don't even try to be a perfect judge. I tell them in advance that I'm blind and drunk and biased against them and it's up to them to sell me every hit. The the way I see it is if I'm if I'm directing a pool, my primary responsibility is keeping everyone safe. Yes, of course. 
you know, making the correct calls. That's number two. But number one is keeping, keeping everyone safe. And then only after that do I worry about, okay, was this the right call? Yeah. And so on. Yeah, actually, um, I had you on my list of people to invite to come on the show, like for ages. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot of people who do swords. Um, and like just for us about, you know, you sort of made your way to the top, but I was about to send you a message. And somebody on my Sword School Discord server said, Guy, you really should get Rebecca Glass on. Because she was at this oh. tournament and she was at this tournament and she seemed like really cool and she, and she was like judging and, and directing and stuff and she seems like you know, the sort of person you should get on the show. I was like, yes, I know. I've met her. <laughs> we should definitely get her on the show. Oh, I wonder, I, now I want to know who said that. Well, I, <laughs> I'm not going to... Well, I'll, I'll send you a... a all, all of my guests get invited onto the server. So if you, you can come on the server and you can see it yourself. Because... <laughs> Oh, right that there. makes me feel so wonderful, so warm and fuzzy yeah. inside. <laughs> but I, but it was specifically, um, you see, I was I was after the the Zettel in German. That's what made me think you'd be just the right person to come on. Um, but what uh, this person was saying about the judging and the the directing, I think you probably have some ideas about how to do it well. Care to share? Uh, so. A lot of it for me comes down to public speaking and being comfortable with public speaking. Okay. So if I think about, you know, I've done a lot of tournaments at this point and I've had a lot of different people direct my fights. If I think about, and I'm talking about directing here more than just um, being a line judge. Line judge, yeah. Yeah. Um, All the people who I've really enjoyed directing my pool are people who all have experience with public speaking. Um, some are teachers. Some have refereed uh, Olympic fencing or done a lot of refereeing for HEMA fencing. Uh, a lot of are uh, ex-military where that's kind of drilled into you. But the ability to communicate clearly and confidently helps a lot. It's a difference between... Okay, well, red's point kind of came in and it kind of landed on the wrist, and then blue had this afterblow to the head that was so and so quality. There's a difference between that and then halt, score, red hit to head, two points red. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's, it's, like, it's like when you're navigating and someone else is driving, you may not be actually sure whether you should come off here or it's the next junction or whatever but the driver can't say well there's a you can't say there's a 60 percent probability that we should turn left here right because they're driving the car they need direction so you say yeah okay we're coming off here so get into the left hand and off we go and um then you know two minutes later you say ah we're actually on the wrong road that's my fault now what we need to do now is take this next right hand turn right so mistakes are fine but is that Confident delivery is absolutely critical. And then another thing that I do is before I start my ring and I have all the fencers and all the judges together mm-hmm. is I like to, um, where am I going with this? I, I had this idea and then it just leaked out of my head. So give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> my 
Um, but I like to say, so in a lot of the U.S. tournament scenes, um, unlike the uh, Nordic scene, uh, the director is allowed to overrule the judges. Yes. Uh, in some tournaments, they say the director is God, which means all calls are ultimately up to the director, and the director can completely ignore the judges. And in other tournaments, the director really has to take the judges' opinions and can only override them if it's like something that's super blatant. Yeah. Um, but I like to say that I look, I'm look. i looking for a consensus um, with my judges, especially if I have more than one line judge. But I'm looking for some sort of consensus. If there is no consensus, we throw the exchange out and refight it. It's the fairest thing yeah. to do to the fighters. Yeah, you might have done this awesome technique, and I'm really sorry that you know none of us saw it, but the fairest thing to do is when in doubt, throw it out, fight another yeah. bout. Um, yeah, I, I, and I agree completely. And I'd be swift about it. I, I do exactly that, but I do it without the apology. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I also like to tell my judges, you know, move around the ring. Um, uh, rotate your position between fights. Uh, in an, an ideal scenario, if you're in a situation where you have more than one co-judge, like say you're a director and you have three people as your line judges in the ideal scenario, you would have four people with you and then you um, have one sit out and then you rotate around. So then someone rotates out and the other person rotates back in and it helps keep everyone fresh. So if you're just standing in the same position the entire time for the entire pool, your eyes are going to get tired. Your brain's going to get tired and you're going to start making mistakes. Yep. Um, So it's, it's a, habit I, I learned a really early in my first couple tournaments as a judge myself to just rotate throughout the the pool um, to it's okay to to move around while people are fighting so you have the better vantage point and then when you see a point scored you shout point and then you keep your head down so that you're not unfairly influenced by the other judges so you keep your head down while the judge says score and you indicate the score. And then only after that do you look up. Interesting. I, it didn't occur to me about the not looking at the other judges. It was, um, I think, the, the two people res- most responsible for teaching me that, um, I think, were Stephen Cheney and Toby Hall. Okay. Because um, when I was taught um, sort of classical sport fencing judging, you have the president who's, you've got the two fences, you've got the president or director, and then behind each fencer, because they're doing it on a strip, which makes life a lot easier, um, you have two judges. And so let's say you and I were fencing. The two judges behind me, you could literally cut my head off and they wouldn't call anything because they're only looking to see whether I hit you. And the two judges behind you are doing the same thing, right? So there isn't that sense of being influenced. But what happens is after every, or maybe after every five, if it's the 15, it's probably after every five fits, or if then the judges rotate. So you're not always behind the same fencer because you might have favorites. Um, but yeah, that, that way the influence by the other judges isn't really a factor because, you know, you saw it or you didn't see it. And that's that. Um, you're not, you're not trying not- to see two things at once. I don't, I don't think anyone is consciously trying to be influenced oh, no, by another judge. And I mean, if, if they are, it's, it's 
as a director, it's clear, clearly noticeable when someone signals one thing, then they look somewhere else and they change their signal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there is, and I'm definitely sure that this has happened to me too, um, that there is that subconscious influence, whether we realize it or of not. Course. Yeah, we, we're um, social animals. And, you know, it's if everyone is saying one thing and you're saying something else, it's a difficult position to be in. And there's always there's that gap in time between when the action happens, when you call the halt, and then when you indicate the score. Mm-hmm. And a lot can happen in your brain in that instant. So one of the things that I think this is just my opinion, but one of the things that I think that would help is limiting the the time of that gap. That we call halt to the action and then signal for the score as soon as possible, so your brain doesn't forget what you just saw. Yeah. Because it's very, I've, I've had the experience myself of calling halt or whatever and then forgetting why. Like, because, <laughs> you know, human brains are weird like that. I mean, so I get the, I get the sort of attraction of having a machine that can't make mistakes because it can't lose its focus, like do the sum of forest. But I think something is lost when you don't have to, like, demonstrate your hit. When you just have to, do it to the satisfaction of the machine, but not actually demonstrate it. Yeah, the the absolute best directors I've seen and the ones that I would like to uh, emulate mm-hmm. um, are the ones that can call the action and then tell you, tell you exactly what happened. Yeah. And, you know, why they're calling what they call. And that, it's a skill. It, it's a learnable skill, but it is a skill that takes practice and experience. Yeah. I... I- I teach it to my students like because it's necessary when you, even if you're not in tournaments, if you're just fencing and you know, you're fencing, you're, you're sparring after class or whatever, or during class and you get hit, you need to know why you got hit. And so you need to be able to wind back the hit and, you know, at least a few steps back to see what happened. So the way we do it is we have a group of three, one person watching two people fencing, they fence to one hit. And then one of them says what, they think happened the other one says what they think happened and then the observer says what they saw happen and then they try and recreate what just happened working backwards maybe three or four steps from the fight my, my from the, from the husband head. my husband did a similar drill in one of his mm-hmm. classes that um it wasn't exactly the same but it had to do with the you know you fence and then you try to explain what happened um and then the um the the coach or observer says what they thought they happened uh it works both as coaching practice and judging practice absolutely yeah yeah and it's it's really useful also because if you know what happened you can then train to fix it so what we what we then normally do is the person who got hit you run that same exchange again and they get to counter the hit right which is just it just helps and then you know then things switch around and they can the next two people fence to one hit and and again, it's very tempting because we, we think in linear narrative. You start at the beginning and go to the hit, whereas that's horrible for memory. It's much better to start at the hit and work backwards because the yeah. hit will define what must have happened right before it, which defines what must have happened right before it. And it's just it's just much more easy, much easier that way. Um, okay. Uh, now, I do have to ask, because people will be wondering... Um, how did you get onto Jeopardy? What was it like? And 
Did the pressure of being on TV help you with the pressure of tournaments? All right, so I'll take this step by step. So the first, okay, how yeah. did I get on? How did I get on Jeopardy? Um, it's actually really straightforward. I I took an online test. Um, nowadays, you can take the online test whenever you want. Uh, when I did it, they only offered it uh, certain days of the year. Um, but you take the online test. If you score well on the online test, you get added to a pool to be invited to audition in person. Um, you go to the audition in person. You do a mock Jeopardy game. You talk a little bit about yourself, and um, you do another uh, uh, quiz. And if you pass that quiz, you're in the contestant pool, and you can be called any time in the next year and a half to be on the show. Okay. Um, so they do ask if you know anyone who has been a contestant on the show. Um, and I knew at the time I knew two people. Now I know a whole lot more. <laughs> sure. um, and so uh, during the in-person audition, um, they give you a whole packet to fill out, and they do ask you for you know the interesting you know facts about you. So of course I said you know I'm a trained swordsman. <laughs> yeah, yeah but it's the the process is actually really straightforward, and um, there, there wasn't anything special about getting on. I got on the same way any other contestant gets on mm-hmm. uh, by going through the audition process. Uh, in terms of what it was like, it was a lot of fun. It felt a bit like a dream. That okay, I I did the thing. Um, it's. It's a bit weird in that you uh, record it in a TV studio. So when you're recording it, you see the studio audience. The studio is not that big. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there have been bigger audiences at finals in a HEMA event. Sure. Uh, depending on the event. Um, but So you're in the studio and you're recording, and it almost feels like you're on a, like a backlot studio tour, and this is a fun interactive activity, and it doesn't really hit that oh, hey, this is going to be on national TV <laughs> or anything. Um, and I'm I'm not known for being camera shy. Okay. Um, but if you want to talk about the pressure between a Jeopardy and a HEMA tournament, for me, Jeopardy was easier. Wow. Okay. Uh, and I, the, the primary reason I will say this is because I'm good at trivia. I know I'm good at trivia. And a trivia competition does not, or at least it shouldn't involve the risk of serious lifelong injury from participation. Fair. Yes. So no, no one is actually going to break a bone on you. Yeah. So I'm already going into Jeopardy and I'm not worried about getting hurt physically. Yeah. Psychologically, maybe, but, but not physically. Um, and I'm doing something that I know I'm good at. Um, okay. Or at least compared to the general population. In the like actual trivia community... I'm okay, but like in the general population, there's a trivia community. Oh yeah. Okay, so I, I know nothing about this. Tell me more. I've, so there like, are all sorts of uh, trivia um, competitions. So I'm mm-hmm. part of a thing called Learned League or Learned League, uh, okay. which is a massive uh, online trivia league. Okay. Um, you have you have seasons of like twenty five days where you're in your league and you go head to head with someone else um, answering trivia questions and then you award your opponent points based on how you think they will 
they will answer the questions, so there's a bit of uh, gamesmanship in there. Okay. Um, and then uh, in between the different seasons, you'll have uh, one-day quizzes, which are a quiz on a, a one specific topic. So I've created one-day quizzes on Tudor England and swords, because, of course, I'm going to create a quiz yeah. on swords. Um, and then there are also mini-leagues, which take like 10 or 11 days instead of 25 days. Um, last so, year, I edited a mini-league on uh, diseases and pandemics, and it got a shout-out in The New Yorker, and I'm like, this oh, is wow. the my life. <laughs> That's amazing. Just... Um because this is, this is an unfamiliar world to me. Um, what would be a typical trivia question on swords? Uh, so, I'm trying to think of the ones I wrote. Um, I mean, if, if you want to but, dig them up, then I, I can edit this a little bit out. So, uh, an easy, one of the easier questions would be, uh, this part of a sword is often erroneously called a blood groove, um, ah, okay. But you know, was meant for a different purpose. What's it called? Uh, another one I wrote. I know, uh, I, wrote I, know I know, I know. It's a fuller. It's a fuller. <laughs> um, I wrote a question about uh, the Princess Bride, where I say in in um, the Dread Pirate Roberts fight with Nigel Montoya, uh, they mention Agrippa Capofaro and and Benetti, who were actual historical Antibes. um uh, fencing teachers, yeah. uh, and then I think the question was, what weapon were, uh, what weapon were they talking about? And the answer is rapier. Okay. Um, so it's, um, you know, it it could be anything remotely relevant to swords. Yeah, but you, you, you at some point it becomes hyper specialized. Really? Oh, yeah. Like, um, so I don't know. What Rockwell hardness would you expect the midpoint of a sword from 1400 Northern Italy to be? That That's yeah, not that's, something that's that anyone's going to answer. Specific. Yeah. So, so, so how do you judge you, it? So when you write a one-day quiz, you go through mm-hmm. a, a testing period where you, you write your quiz, you submit the questions, and then people that signed up to test the quiz mm-hmm. um, get to play test, and they yeah. will give you feedback that, Hey, I think this question is way too specific for a general audience. Okay. Um, and then we also have an informal um, rating system that mm-hmm. it works kind of like movie ratings, like G, P, G, R, uh, and so on, which are the American ratings. Yeah. Um, and saying that, like, if a quiz is rated G, it means you don't really have to have specialized knowledge in the subject. Anyone yep. can participate. Whereas if it was rated R, it would be. We're expecting you to have familiarity with the subject over and beyond what any other person might have. Right. So like in in the UK quiz show Mastermind, they have the general knowledge round and then the um, contestants get to state their specialized area and they get asked questions on that area. Like, you know, if, you, yeah. if your specialized area is James Bond movies, you might be asked really obscure questions about who was the you know, cinematographer on Dr. No, for instance. Yeah, mine would mine would probably be Tudor England, although I Really? Could, yeah. Okay. So I, I have to ask, have you listened to the episode with Ruth Goodman of my show? No. Okay. 
I think you might like it because she is a living history like maven and you know, does TV shows and stuff here. And she's actually done stuff like cooked in actual Tudor ovens. Right. She's really cool. I, th- I think, I think you might enjoy that. Um, okay. So why Tudor? What? I, I have a note here to, to get a bit more granular about the kind of history you're into. And you've, you've mentioned Tudor a couple of times. Now, so what, what draws you to the Tudor period? It's a good story. So, um, my freshman year of college, I read a book called The Making of Tudor England. Um, So, I I already had some knowledge about Henry VIII Mm -hmm. at the time, but I didn't really know anything about Henry VII. And this book, it's not a terribly long book. Um, The first two chapters were hard to get through because there's a whole bunch of Welsh names that... Yeah. It's just like names, names, names. Um, But then starting from chapter three... It talks about the story of Henry Tudor and his life story, which is really fascinating. His mom is 13 when he's born. His his dad's already dead. His mom's 13 when he's born. They somehow both survive the, the birth. And then when he's 14, he has to flee England um, to Brittany because he somehow ends up as the last Lancastrian heir, even though there are like 10 people with a better claim to the throne than he has. So he flees to Brittany. He lives in exile there. He... Um, avoids uh, capture twice, once by, um, I think, dressing as a servant, um, once by feigning a stomach illness, and in one of these cases, he was, like, literally minutes from being captured. And if he gets captured, he gets killed, so it's, like, life or death. Yeah. Uh, and then he, when Richard III does Richard III things, um, it's his his mother... And the uh, widow of Edward IV kind of come together and catch a plot to have him invade and take the throne and then marry Edward IV's eldest daughter and end 50 years of civil war. And he does this. He leads the invasion. They defeat Richard III at Bosworth. He marries Elizabeth of York. It was an arranged marriage. The two may have not ever met each other prior um, to the marriage, um, and, and it actually ended up being a really successful marriage. There's no record of him um, ha- ever having any sort of mistress. Um, they had, I think they had like six or seven kids. Um, one di- uh, Three survived to adulthood, one died as a teenager. And he, his reign basically takes England from being a backwater medieval kingdom and then uh, ends up being on the, the precipice of the Renaissance. The first Renaissance art in England, or the first Renaissance artist in England was an Italian artist that he uh, patronized. Um, and then and then it also helps illustrate Henry VIII's reign and why Henry VIII was so concerned about having a male heir because England being in the midst of civil war for not having an heir was still in living memory. Yeah. When... Henry VIII becomes king. And of course, you know, we all know the story of Henry VIII. Um, and it's actually really interesting that among his wives, the one that arguably ended up being the most successful, not in marriage, but post-marriage, is the one that gets least talked about or have, has the least attention. That's Anna Cleves. It's the okay. shortest actual marriage. And then when the king says, I want a divorce, he's, she says, okay. 
And she ends up being, like, one of the richest women in England, um, free to marry whoever she wants. She never marries again, but she's free to marry whoever she wants. She's invited back to court, and there, there's something of a, a friendship between the two. Um, and she's often portrayed in the media as being, like, really simple. Not necessarily dumb, but just, like, really simple. But the reality is that she had to have some brains about her to be able to end up in the position she ended up. Oh, sure. Um, huh. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even know that about Anne of Cleves. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. is that not, Everyone knows, like, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, and then I guess people know yeah. about Catherine Howard because she's the other, like, really tragic one. Um, but Anne of, Anne of Cleves gets glossed over a lot. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, because she's just sort of, she shows up, they marry for a bit, and then they get divorced, and that's that. She's, it's kind of like, in the story of Henry VIII, it kind of comes across as a bit of a non-event, but actually, there's all this other stuff going on. Yeah. Huh, okay. And it's also, I mean, the Tudor England is sort of the height, or we'll, we'll say like Tudor and early Stuart England is kind of the height of absolutism as a form of government, that... Yeah. The the king is. I don't want to say god, the king basically. is god, but the king has the you know. Well, I mean, the king literally stood up to God and said, "No, no, no, no I do." I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's really interesting to me is though, because Henry VIII wrote some stuff against Lutheranism, the Pope gave him the title Defender of the Faith, and yes. even after he left the the church, you'd think he would have renounced that, but the British monarch today still retains that title, which so is insane. Here's the, here's the um, fun part, is that while Henry left the Roman Catholic Church, he mm. remained dogmatically Catholic his entire life. Oh, sure. The, the only thing he didn't accept was the Pope being the head of the church. Um, this made it really confusing for me when I had a, um, I had a test in a history class that I took in college and the class was on the history of uh, Christianity. It wasn't specifically on Tudor England. But one of the questions on the test was, who was the first Protestant king of England? And they gave both Henry VIII and Edward VI as a possible answer. And it was a, it was a multiple-choice test, and I'm like, I don't know how to answer this. Because Henry left Rome, but the first actual Protestant king was Edward VI. Yeah. What was the right so answer on the test? I just wrote a note didn't answer that one. Yeah, because that's, that's obviously... I mean, the answer they're looking for is probably Henry VIII. But the, the but actual the true correct answer, answer yeah, is, that, yeah. is Edward VI. Yes. So I was like, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm like, you know, I was a freshman at the time. It wasn't like I could challenge them or anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there are a couple of questions that I'd like to sort of finish up on. Uh, the first of this is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? So I had to think about this one a bit, mm-hmm. um, and I think my answer is, so there is a, a chain, a, a coffee donut chain in the U.S. called Dunkin' Donuts. Have you heard yep. of it? We have it here. Yeah, okay. And so um, one day, and you know the website Twitter, I'm yep. sure. Uh, of yeah. course, yes. So one day, and I have, no, I have no idea what prompted me to say this, but one day I was just like, you know, there should be a restaurant called Drunken Donuts. There should. And then... Um, the response I got to that from someone was that do not put a million dollar idea on this website. Wow. So um, 
I'm going to go ahead and assume that was the, the best idea I've never acted on. Okay, so you would, you would open a restaurant chain with donuts and alcohol? Yeah, basically. I think, I think that's a great idea. It's hard for owning a restaurant. Owning a restaurant is never a good idea. It's the quickest way to take a take a billionaire and make it a millionaire is to open a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but we're not talking about opening a restaurant. We're talking about opening a chain of restaurants. Mm. So you can take a trillion dollars and become a billionaire overnight. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. All right. Uh, that's not what I was expecting, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's good. It's, it's <laughs> you have succeeded in surprising me. So the best thing you've acted on is to open a donut restaurant serving alcohol. All right, we'll go with that. What kind of alcohol would go well with a donut? That's a great question. I have no idea. Because I, I like donuts and I like alcohol, and to me, donuts are associated more with like tea, or in America, coffee perhaps. Although coffee and donuts doesn't work for me. It's tea and donuts because for me donuts are like an afternoon thing but beer wouldn't work wine maybe perhaps, perhaps possibly action. like possibly like mimosas or prosecco or possibly or actually you'd have to adjust the donut recipe but you could make pairings of single malt whiskies with specific kinds of donuts I could see I could totally because whiskey that. and chocolate goes together really well so a really creative chef could maybe come up with donut variations that actually work really well with whiskey. Okay. Yeah, that totally, totally work. All right. And, and you're not claiming any kind of um, sort of patent or, or copyright on that idea. So anyone listening who wants to go and do that, we're happy to act as consultants, but <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, my last question, what... Do you think is the most urgent thing we could do to improve historical martial arts worldwide? So I had to think about this one a bit, but I think the answer that I settled on was that if, you know, I had resources to spend, mm-hmm. um, it would be devoted to education. Okay. Uh, school programs, uh, museum programs for students, uh, just a way to, to get the information out there that you know hey this exists this is what we do this is what we look at yeah even if swords themselves are not the thing that you're interested in learning the research skills the analytical skills um even learning the physical skills or how to take instructions on a page and then apply them physically uh these are all skills that are usable in other areas as well um Mm -hmm. and all things that can help a developing brain um and with with education, I think you get more people interested, um, but you also you end up with better fencing. You end up with oh sure, you know more resis- more resources to uh, draw upon. You end up with better preservation efforts, mm-hmm. um, which I, I mean I have to say for the the most part, you know someone digs up a sword, people get excited about it, pretty good about it. Um, but I generally think for a lot of things that education is the best way to go. Okay. So you're thinking particularly school programs, like getting, getting kids when they're young and getting them addicted to swords early 
<laughs> I mean, I'm also a fan of adult programs. It's just okay. that you, you just tailor them uh, differently. Cause what I really like about the idea, though, is, is um, at the moment, what we're doing is mostly seen as a fringe pursuit. So anytime, like, a university has a you know, professor or person on staff who is studying swordsmanship in, or armoured combat or something like that in some kind of specific way that involves actually recreating it, that's like a major step forward for us, right? Because it, in a sense, legitimises what we're doing. It puts it into the mainstream. And not that I particularly want swordsmanship to be mainstream, but having it um, to be a a normal course of study means that it has access to the same sort of resources that as other areas of study. Have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, and that, it's that sort can of be really helpful. If, if I tell someone that I do HEMA, I want them to be able to, to know what HEMA is or historical fencing, yeah. um, as opposed to, um, you know, one of the common respons- responses I get is, Oh, so you do LARP? Right. Which, I don't, and I don't, I don't want to, you know, drag on LARP. If that's your thing, that's great. It's just, that's not what I do. Right. Yes. It, and you know, I, I experience the same thing. Most people think that my job must involve training actors to do stage fights, which I've done a little bit of, but it's really not my jam. Right. Cause swords, well, it has to be in the movies, right? Cause they're not real. And, and hey, actual education in HEMA will lead to better stage fighting. And absolutely. better yes, swordsmanship in the movies. That is that is absolutely true. But but the the notion that someone would I mean, you mentioned earlier that not a lot of people do this for a living, but people are consistently surprised that I teach people how to fight with swords for a living and don't have a day job. Like like but I'm like, well, I haven't got time for a day job. I'm far too busy swinging swords around. <laughs> okay, so um, your your notional program would involve like museum visits and like school programs and I'm thinking like actually getting it onto maybe the high school curriculum as like a as a subject um, so I'm not opposed to getting it on a high school curriculum um, but in the US and a lot of um, places you might have a hard time convincing schools to say let's have kids sword fight on school property this is true. Well, they could they could do the theory side. Yeah, yeah. they could. And like my uh, so I went to public high school, and that's public in the mm-hmm. United States sense. Um, yeah. Your equivalent would be like state school. And our school had a fencing team. Right. Uh, I was not. I was not on it. Um, I did another activity that <laughs> happened the same time of year, and I at, at the time I also didn't realize that fencing is something I might be interested in. Um, but we had a, you know, we had a fencing team, um, and fencing is acceptable and respected right. and all that. So, um, and many of these places have wrestling teams. They have wrestling. Our school had a wrestling and they team have, too. And they, the wrestling and they have fencing. And if you put those together, you get longsword. Really. Yeah. The the biggest issue that a lot of schools have with wrestling is that they tend to be a boys team only. So okay. in the state that I grew up in. If there if there was no girls team, then girls could compete on the boys team. Okay. Um, whereas fencing uh, fencing had a separate men's team and women's team. Um, I know 
I know in other states, wrestling is a much bigger sport than it was mm-hmm. in the state that I grew up in. So, like, my high school had a wrestling team, um, but it was not the most popular sport. Okay. Yeah. But it, it just strikes me that from a liability perspective, if you're letting kids wrestle and you're letting them poke each other with foils, then there, there is a way in there to get them to do historical martial arts, particularly if you get the history yeah. teacher involved. I think it can be done. You just have to be careful about how you go about it. Well, that's true for many things, isn't it? <laughs> like showing up to tournaments. I mean, it, you can do it, but you better be careful how to get your head in the right place. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Rebecca. It's been lovely to see yeah. you again. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rebecca. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. Thanks to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Daniel Jacquet, who has been extremely active in both the academic and practical aspects of medieval combat research, and he is perhaps best known for his work on how well a knight can move in armour. He also has a PhD from Geneva University in Medieval History on combat in armour at the end of the Middle Ages and at the beginning of the Renaissance. He is perhaps best known for organising a competition between a knight himself, a firefighter and a soldier where they go over an assault course in their full combat gear and the results are fascinating. And if you want to hear all about that, you need to tune in next week. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And if you have an extra minute, please do rate the show and even leave a review. That would be fantastic. And of course, as always, please share this as widely as you may. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week. Music.